Hi, I'm Harrison. I'm Avni. And I'm Justin. And we are the Stanford Politics Podcast. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Stanford Politics Podcast. How's everybody doing? Good. Stressed about the midterms, honestly. Also excited about the midterms. I think there's a good possibility for some good stuff to happen in either way, so it should be exciting. Double-edged sword. So, if you haven't guessed already, we're going to talk about the midterms today. If um, as if there was anything else to talk about four days before the midterms. Yeah. So, the midterms are coming up. That's huge. Hot takes right now. Who's going to take back the House and who's going to take back the Senate? I don't think these are hot takes. I think Dems are going to take back the House. I think we're going to lose the Senate. Yeah, I made a similar take last episode, but I'm going to plug my own take again and say that I think it's likely, more likely than most like political pundits are giving credit for, that Republicans do very, very well in the midterms. Um, the new Pew poll coming out has said that immigration has overtaken health care as the number one cause for concern for most voters, which should be something that really makes Dems fearful, especially given that the hardline rhetoric coming out of Trump and the rest of the GOP seems to be the kind of thing that resonated during like the Reagan administration and during the Bush administration. The idea that Democrats are just allowing the flood of illegal immigrants in, and that's like leading to things like crime and murders and stuff. Um, Wait, so what's your hot take, though? His the hot take is that are Republicans gonna, are going to win. Both houses. I would say it's less more probabilistic than deterministic, but I think it's more likely than people think that Republicans either, A, gain a lot of seats in the House, or B, like, just gain a ton more seats in the Senate. Like, they go up to, like, 54, creep up on 55. Damn, that's a hot take. Um, I think you are incorrect. <laughs> but let's, let's talk about the, like, immigration rhetoric, because I think that's been extremely prevalent recently. Um, like, just a couple days ago, Donald Trump announced that he's going to end birthright citizenship with an executive order. Right. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, I was, I'm a citizen because of birthright citizenship. Parents were not um, citizens when I was born, and probably the only reason that I was able to have, like, such um, an easy path towards citizenship is because, obviously, I was born here, right, in sunny, sunny California. Justin, what do you think? I think the birthright citizenship rhetoric has been interesting. I think this is one of the few times in recent history where we've seen a president just very outwardly first attempt to just override the Constitution entirely, um, much to the dismay of most legal scholars. And then I don't know if y'all saw it, but the president tweeted again sort of this like 140-character constitutional justification. 140-character. Love to hear it. <laughs> saying that because of the byline of the jurisdiction thereof, Trump was essentially saying that since he has the providence to say who is and is not under the jurisdiction of the United States, he can then say that e children born to illegal immigrants are not under the jurisdiction of the U.S., therefore they're not allowed birthright citizenship. Um, and I think this is a sort of issue where you could see sort of a lot of the topics we were talking about last week with something like a Supreme Court legitimacy crisis, wherein if a president is just willing to override what is very, very well-state constitutional precedent, then who knows how well-responded he would be to something like a Supreme Court decision. Yeah. And I think it's important to, like, first, I think most constitutional scholars have, like, been very clear that Trump's justification is not real. And, yes, exactly. You can't <laughs> just override this with an executive order. Um, and I think Trump probably knows that somewhere in his head. And so I think the like question of why is he doing this is, is an important question to ask. Um, and I think it, it ties back into like rhetoric to mobilize his base for the midterms. 
um, and just scaring people about immigration, about this caravan of people coming up uh, from South America. See, I think on one hand, you're right that like immigration rhetoric really fires up his base. But I think due to things like families getting separated at the border, sort of the rhetoric around that, um, that it's sort of done the opposite. I read a really good um, article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that's like, what is the limit of Trumpism? And then a lot of people agreed that it was sort of the inhumane act of separating families and children at the border, having like three-year-olds having to defend themselves in court by themselves. That sort of image doesn't sit well with anyone, Republican, Democratic. Um, like seeing a, like a two-year-old child have to sit in court and sort of fight for their citizenship is something that I would see, I would say like puts like a sour taste in everybody's mouth and has especially riled up the Democratic base. Um, I think there was like um, like tons of fundraisers, tons of volunteering around going to these centers. Um, and I think that even immigration has its limit like limits. like people don't want, Obviously, people don't want illegal immigrants to come in through the borders. That's the entire word of the meaning. Like, that's exactly what illegal means. They're not supposed to be here. That is against the law. Um, however, once people are already here, like sort of separating children from their families, that sort of, um, I think, has pushed Trump's base in a different way than just like thinking about immigrants writ large. Yeah, and I think the Republicans have done a very good job of capturing the narrative over the past few days. It seems like this whole caravan thing is all the mainstream media is talking about. And I think this is like very central to Trump's strategy, the idea that he says something very inflammatory and pundits all across the country take up all of their airtime trying to refute the president, but all the while they're keeping the focus on his argument. And the people that the pundits are talking to, like the liberal people that consume that media, are not going to support Donald Trump either way, but it's still riling up some of the more angry Republicans. So there's actually an interesting um, like metric for determining how much individual constituents care about certain issues. Uh, so it's on a 1 to 10 scale of how angry people get by certain issues. So for Democrats, say something like child separations, they would be upwards of like an 8 or 9 over how alarmed they are. Right now, Republicans are at a 7.9, according to survey data by Reuters, which is really high for the average issue. Republicans really seem to care about this caravan. This is really at the forefront of their mind. And so I think it's doing a really good job of bridging this sort of excitement gap that the Republicans might have seen coming into the midterms. Also, just a quick note, he's also, uh, Trump has also been talking heavily about gangs such as like M13 um, and sort of scaring people with rhetoric around that. Um, which I think has definitely contributed to sort of like that anger, because not only are they coming in and quote unquote sealing our jobs, they're also causing crime, like making our neighborhoods unsafe, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is just like baseless claims like that. And that's sort of so central to it is I have Trump one time tweeted that there was ISIS mixed in amongst the caravan. Right. Of which there's no evidence that that's true. Right. But. For just the average person seeing, well, there might be ISIS, that's enough cause for alarm. And it's the kind of thing where he says there might be ISIS, and there's no easy way to prove that wrong. Right, like you there's know, no there, way there to prove that ISIS. there's not ISIS. Right, we haven't interviewed every person in there. But it's there's no reason to believe anyone is ISIS either. And I think that those claims, there was a bunch of claims as well that like George Soros was funding this caravan. Um, Which Trump agreed to in an interview. Yeah, yeah. They asked him, they're like, is George Soros funding it? He's like, probably. People seem to think so. And the, I mean, first of all, these claims are 
completely false and baseless, but they're they're having a real impact. The, so another big story that happened recently was the shooting outside of Pittsburgh, right? Um, right. Which we don't know for sure exactly why it occurs. It, it occurred, but it looks like this guy was sort of riled up by like. These stories of the Jews funding this caravan and funding these illegal immigrants and then went to shoot up a synagogue. And so I think these like baseless, like laughable claims at times are they're having a real impact. I mean, when you take into account, like, I mean, everybody's probably had this lesson in English class, like logos, pathos, ethos, um, something that's often there, each of which is like can be equally important. Um, Trump sort of forgoes the logos part of that um, trio and sort of goes with the ethos and the pathos, the sort of emotion around your people getting murdered or your jobs getting stolen by people that don't belong here, as well as the ethos of being the president. That sort of legitimacy is something that is probably unparalleled in any other um position in the entirety of America, maybe even the world, like being the president of the most important nation or quote unquote most important nation. Um, I think so people who maybe like didn't go to college, they're like, of course, I'm going to believe what the president has to say. He's the president. He went to college. He has the support of all these people. He has all these advisors. Um, And I think that's a a, a real problem. And I think it doesn't help when like journalistic organizations just republish what the president is saying. Um, you know, when he says he's going to end birthright citizenship and the headline is like Trump announces that he will end birthright citizenship, you know, the headline doesn't say he's not allowed to do that and constitutionally he can't do that. And so I think the the news in like even just restating what he said sort of amplifies and like gives credibility to his message. Yeah. Especially when something like three, I think it's three-fourths of Republicans trust Trump more than the media. Yikes. Um, If you're in a situation where any objective coverage, no matter what you do, is only reaching a quarter of the other side of the aisle, then even if you are properly advertising your headlines, you really have to find a way to just establish more legitimacy. And I think that's a crisis that the media is going to find themselves in well after Trump. Right. And I think, like, sort of saying this from, like, a more meta angle, I think the whole strategy Trump has had towards the media in the last, like, ever since he ran his campaign, which was to frame the media as always being fake, as always being incorrect. That way, whenever the media said anything against him, he could be like, oh, this is exactly what I said. It's a conspiracy mm-hmm. against me. And um, whenever they said something right, he'd be like, thank God, for the first time, there is somebody that is actually like writing about the truth and when that voice is coming from someone who is like you know one has like huge name id as not only the president but before that like a businessman star of his own tv show um it's it's very difficult to ignore yeah i mean no pun intended but it's almost become the ultimate trump card of the republican party right the ability to just take away any sort of use of statistics or numbers or actual argumentation or like polling data and just say like no that's fake right um, especially after Trump won the election overcoming exactly. statistical odds, the number of people I've spoken to who just refuse to accept polling data right. on the basis of, oh, the same polls that said Hillary Clinton were going to win, I think is something that makes it really hard to persuade people in this day and age. Right. Especially because when you think about it, like the average person, like someone who's not like, su- like follows the politics like us, um, they probably think about like one event, one political event every four years. And that is the presidential race. Um, so whenever Donald Trump points like, oh, but I won the presidential race, that is something people can like point to and resonate with. However, like smaller other instances of like 
other races, other like smaller political events, um, things like the Iran deal, for example, like uh, most people aren't as familiar with those as they are the presidential campaign. Um, so it, it's something that like, oh, like, I don't know, like, I don't, I didn't have the time to read that. So I'm not sure if that's true. I'm going to know what I, I'm going to trust what I know is true, which is that Trump won the election when no one else said he could. Right. So circling back to the midterms at large, um, it's clear that the Republican strategy has focused a lot on immigration and this sort of intense, scary rhetoric, but they've also talked a lot about healthcare. Um, and it's interesting, the discrepancies we're seeing on both sides between what the Democrats are saying about healthcare uh, and what the Republicans are saying. Healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. I think that's the big, big sort of topic to focus on for the midterms. Um, I was, um, as you will hear later, we talk um, with Anna Eshoo, who is um, sort of primed to be the leader of the House Health Committee if the Democrats take back the take back the House um, in the midterms. Um, I think that there's sort of a lot riding on healthcare for this election because I think it's something Republicans are sort of realizing that it's super important to their base, not just the Democratic base, and that they need to find some way to um, somehow appease like sort of like the two the two groups in their party, like in their um, coalition, which is like the extremely wealthy people um, and like doctors, et cetera, that don't really want um, sort of Obamacare or like the American um, um, Care Act to continue as well as like the more rural blue collar workers that like desperately need the ACA to get health insurance and that sort of a crisis that I think is going to be extremely problematic no matter who wins the house no matter who wins the senate I think it's sort of the big conversation that um, all of congress is going to have to focus on for the next year because it's clear through polling data et cetera, that healthcare is the most important issue for a lot of people But I think the way Republicans are talking about it, and Democrats as well, I think speaks to the fact that the Affordable Care Act is working and and has worked and is incredibly popular. You know, red state Democrats are running on, you know, we are going to protect people with pre-existing conditions. You know, the Affordable Care Act is going to make sure you and your family don't go bankrupt because of health care. And Republicans are either avoiding talking about it or blatantly lying about pre-existing conditions. I think Joe Biden was uh, campaigning in Iowa the other day and basically said Republicans are either lying to you or they're stupid uh, if they tell you that you can keep protections for pre-existing conditions but dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Um, because you, you can't, right? If you, ta- if you have protections for pre-existing conditions but you don't have a big enough pool, the insurance companies are going to go bankrupt. Yeah, the free market isn't going to work in that instance. Right. And which I think- is why you need the government to, to cover the sort of externalities. Biden's comment that Republicans are lying to you is is very real, um, and I think the the Republican health care lies just speak to like the the success of the Affordable Care Act and like the real salience that health care has as an issue in this election. Yeah, I think every once in a while there comes a time where the other party finds an issue where the opposition did well, um, and I'm not saying that Obamacare was like great or that it you know is perfect, but it helped conservative voters a lot. Um, Some of like the biggest gains in insurance coverage rates have been in conservative states, rural states where there typically aren't access to a whole lot of doctors. Most employers don't have the incentive to offer those things. There's a lot of pre-existing conditions because people are usually poor. They don't have access to healthcare going back generations. 
Um, so, for example, in Kentucky, in 2013, 20% of Kentuckians lacked health care. Now just 8% do. And so for the Republicans, they have to sort of face the situation where the opposition party did something that is helping their constituent base. And for Republican voters, not only is this such a salient issue, because the issue of will I have health care next year or will I not, is just so pressing in their mind, but two, it's something that they can very clearly see as a loss, right? Like if you're talking about broader economic policy, if I'm an average voter, I don't know how tax cuts are going to affect me. Most tax lawyers don't know how tax cuts are going to affect me. But knowing, like the difference between a world in which I am covered by health insurance and I'm not is very, very drastic in terms of my family's economic situation. And that's true for like most Republican voters. And I think this is sort of what you were trying to say, but the, the impact of the law is very clear. Like, even if tax cuts do help you, it's very indirect. And I think it's very clear to know, like, I have health care because of the Affordable Care Act. Whereas, like, if my salary goes up, it could be tax cuts. It could be just that the economy is doing well, you know. Right. Or like if factors. prices go up or down. Right. That, that, not a noticeable difference in my life. But having health care or not is very clearly tied to the existence of this law um, in a way that I think Democrats should be proud of and also are running on. Yeah. There's um, an interesting political science theory um, of stress policies, which are policies that just induce a lot of stress in people. Um, and he- named. And yeah, and healthcare is one of the big ones, right? Because if I don't have healthcare, there's just a lot of stress that goes along with that. I now don't know when I'm going to see a doctor next. I likely have conditions that I'm not seeing a physician for. Right. I probably have to pay really high copays. There's just like very immediate drains on my time and energy that come from that that a lot of policies just don't have. But also, I've heard people sort of from like back home, people that I know, believe Trump's claims that the way the current, the way the ACA is currently going, that the healthcare, that the insurance market is going to implode. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't think that's true, but I think that people definitely do believe that and are like, and that might be a reason why they're voting for Trump is they're like, I think that um, because the way like premiums are going, it's unsustainable. I think that the entire insurance market is sort of going to collapse in the next two years. And I don't want to be here for that. I think the the current administration as well has taken a lot of concrete steps um, to make that happen and to make the the Affordable Care Act less successful. And like unsustainable. Right. Um, I know they slashed the budget for advertising for like the enrollment period. Uh, and so the more people enroll in healthcare, the bigger the pool, Which you know, means the, the, the less work. risk there yeah. is. Um, and so by like deliberately not advertising enrollment, you know, they were trying to make the pool smaller, increase the risk for insurance companies and have insurance companies drop out of the marketplaces. Um, and so, yeah, like I think the Affordable Care Act, you know, it's already complicated and imperfect, but it's it's a lot worse when the government that's overseeing it is actively trying to you know, prevent it from doing its job. Just like the EPA. Yeah, and I think that was when I, I don't know if you guys had the chance to watch the Beto Ted Cruz debates, but one of the things that came up a lot was the idea of Obamacare and the idea of single payer. And one of the things that Ted Cruz talked about was how premiums for the average Texan have gone up over the past number of years. But what Beto rightly called him on and what Cruz didn't explain was that part of the reason for that was the internal dismantling of Obamacare because of the law, like the continuous stream of lawsuits coming from the Texas state legislature. 
So what Texas is doing is that they're making it so it's harder to get that governmental coverage, which means that like the private marketplaces are being filled up more and more and more with sick people that can't get access to that public option. And so obviously premiums are going to rise after that. But I think it's just another piece of evidence as to how politicians can deliberately mess something up and then boogeyman the other side because the average voter is probably isn't very informed on it. Right. Um, so looking to Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, who do we think is going to win? Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. Okay, we're all in agreement. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, it'd be nice if inevitable. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool if Beto won. I have a friend who's like so itching for Beto to win. He's like so excited. I think that's like every Democrat from Texas. But I'm not excited. You're not from Texas. I could. You know, like you're excited for Stacey Abrams I'm to win. I'm so and she's excited for Stacey either. Abrams to win. Stacey Abrams has a very good chance of winning. She has a, she has a, a far better solid chance, chance. Than, than Beto O'Rourke. But also, do you know who like actually is likely to win at this point? Andrew Gillum. DeSantis started out as like 50-50 even split and is now the heavy underdog. Yeah. 538 has him like one in four chances. This is good because a couple of my friends from Florida haven't gotten their absentee ballots yet. So they don't vote we could still win outside of the midterm elections there's been some pretty big elections in other countries avni do you want to tell us about brazil yeah so recently um brazil had their presidential election they elected a essentially what has been called the trump of south america an extremely like far right um sort of political outsider named Jair bolsonaro um, he has sort of been famous for his rhetoric considering, like, destroying the rainforest in order to, like, make it more economically profitable. Um, things like, um, very, like, anti-LGBT laws and essentially being, like, very, like, inflammatory, having a lot of really, um, incisive rhetoric that is supposed to, like, fire up his base very much as it has, ha- has happened with Trump. What I'm particularly concerned about, though, is um, Brazil has the largest percentage of the Amazon rainforest in the entire world, well, has the largest percentage of rainforest, of natural rainforest in the entire world. Um, the fact that he is willing um, to put corporate interests over um, environmental interests in this particular case, given their natural resources, is extremely dangerous, not just for Brazil, but for the entire world. Because um, the sort of oxygen um, provided, like um, produced by the by the Amazon, Amazonian rainforest every year is um, sort of essential to the like continuation of our uh, atmosphere and like um, the, the O2 in our air. Yeah, and I also think that um, to say that Bolsonaro's rhetoric has been inflammatory, I think, is one of the biggest understatements you could say. He's okay. <laughs> n- not only said that democracy doesn't work, but has also lambasted the military regimes of Brazil um, of like the early 90s by saying that they didn't kill enough innocent people. Um, he's called like people very explicit words on um, like on video. He's made a lot of comments about how gay people like do not deserve basic citizenship. Um, very in favor of like military coups to solve problems. Um, that is extremely, extremely dangerous considering sort of the geopolitical um, status of the, the countries surrounding Brazil and South America currently, and sort of their like relationship with the military. Yeah, I mean we've we've seen countries like Venezuela where Maduro has taken full control of the military and exactly. used it for political aim. Um, I think it's even more troubling that this isn't getting as much coverage 
out of the administration right now. For example, John Bolton called the election of Bolsonaro a positive sign for Latin America, um, which is just evidently not the rhetoric that you'd expect to see out of the administration at this point. Not to say that they should denounce them, because I don't think that would be good diplomatically, but um, this should be very much cause for concern for leaders around the world, because people have essentially elected a person who has promised that he would want to instill a dictatorship. Is is that unexpected, though, for this administration? I think I definitely agree that it's it's bad the way that the Trump administration has reacted. But I think my general understanding is that like autocrats support other autocrats. And so if Trump, who clearly has autocratic tendencies and, you know, isn't into democracy, I, I feel like it, it's very understandable that his administration would look to this Brazil election with a positive light. Also, um, sort of going off of that, Bolsonaro has talked repeatedly about how he wants to increase Brazil's relationship and sort of economic engagement with the United States, especially with um, Trump as their leader, considering they have a lot of similarities. Um, I think for this current administration, it couldn't be better because it's showing sort of the Trump effect is broader than just America and just Brexit. It is sort of being reflected in other parts of the world and will also lead to um, like better coalition building when it comes to like the international um, sphere. No, but I think we're seeing like across the globe this sort of trend towards autocrats and away from the like neoliberal world order that Barack Obama and Angela Merkel were so symbolic of. And I think that's dangerous. I thought it was very interesting to see in the Bolsonaro election that the staunch divide between income groups. So the bottom 50% of the income distribution in Brazil, 99% of those brackets voted against Bolsonaro, whereas the converse was true for the higher income brackets. If you look at a graph comparing like the likelihood that a voter voted for Bolsonaro versus how high up in the income bracket, there's almost a line directly down the middle where you can pinpoint wow. the shift between economic classes. There were very, very, very few poor people that voted for Bolsonaro and very few rich people that voted against him which I think is a very dangerous trend when rich people are willing to buck every norm of an elected democracy to get I don't know what. I don't think okay. it's that different, though, than what we've seen here with, you know, rich conservatives being like putting up with a lot of Trump's, you know, violating norms of democracy to pass tax cuts and, you know, cut the social safety net. But I also think there's plenty of poor people in rural America who think, that Trump is in their economic best interest. Right. Whereas in Brazil, there's a, there's a very clear divide, divide where right. rich people have essentially just taken an election right. by force. Okay, this is a really hot take. So you guys better be prepared to cut this because I feel like it might make me sound bad. Um, but I think democracy is inherently a selfish act. And I think that if rich people vote for the person that makes them more money and is the person that's most in line with their economic interests, they should do so. And the entire point of democracy is that whoever shows up to the polls more, whoever votes more, will win. So I think that if it was truly a democratic election and um, Bolsonaro was supported by all these rich people, that means that there were more rich people that showed up to the polls, more people rich, rich people that voted, and um, that's sort of in line, I believe, with the spirit of democracy. If it didn't like, obviously, it's really messed up that um, it there happen to be extremely different economic interests and, like, governmental and political interests for two different income brackets or, like, several different income bra brackets. Um, 
I think the entire point is you vote for who's most beneficial for you. So I, I totally disagree, and yeah, I'll, I'll explain why. I'm, to- so, I'm telling you there was a hot take. Yeah, I mean why. I just want to add that I also completely disagree. Yeah, so I think my best explanation <laughs> would be that every person gets one vote, but not every policy impacts people equally. So if you had a situation where under like any given policy, every rich person would gain a dollar. But every poor person would lose $10. If there are more people getting a dollar than there are people losing $10, then by the spirit of democracy, there would be more people voting for the $10 for the dollar increase, even though the policy is on net bad. So unless you inspire norms around voting such that you don't vote for what selfishly in your best interest, but what you vote for is the most utilitarian policy, you can get situations where it wildly skews towards policies that affect the greatest number of people, not have the most qualitative or quantitative impact. So you think everybody should vote for the greater good, not for themselves? I think everyone in an ideal world would vote like very technically. In an ideal world, but I don't think that's possible. I think people, well, it's, it's like an is versus should question. But like if we're living in a world where it's not possible, why should we Well, I think, think it's definitely it? possible. Like you could like do your research and like figure out which policy is the best one and not what's. So like, but I don't for, think people would, even if like, for example, like. Um, two people, two wealthy people knew that a certain policy was going to hurt them, but help 90% of the rest of America. I think they have an obligation to vote for it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I agree, but I think... Interesting. Yeah. I, I think another important factor to consider, is, especially in American politics, I don't know if this is true in Brazil, but just that wealthy people have more of a voice and easier access to the political system just by virtue of being wealthy. And so, like, that, no, that's entirely fair. I just think that, I, yeah, I think you can separate it from the current situation. I don't think it has to be a wealthy versus poor people debate. Like, say there was a lobbyist group of people that thought it should be legal to, like, I don't know, like, litter. Like, there was, like, the littering caucus, right? Yeah. And, like, 70% of people just, like, really wanted to litter. Avni's argument is that, like, they should win, right? Like, if more people want to litter than shouldn't litter, then, like, the litterers should get their voice. And my argument is... Because that is what democracy is. Right, but my argument... Then I agree with Avni in that sense. Like, democracy is about majority rule. Exactly. And, like, sure, we we can argue about the merits of democracy being a political system. However, I think that the core of democracy is being whatever helps the most people wins. And that only works in a world in which everyone votes for themselves. But I Uh, think that that assumes... That last jump is wrong. Yeah, I think that assumes that everyone votes in their total self-interest. I don't think people ever vote solely in their own self-interest. Really? Yeah, no, when you go to the ballot box, you're thinking about how it will affect you, how it will affect your family, how it will affect your community, how it will affect your state. But it's all about your... Your is the key. Right, but it's it's not a, a singular person, right? You're thinking about your children and your grandchildren and your neighbors and your family and your friends. Yeah, right? but Nobody like, let's say if ballot. I if I grew up um, in an extremely wealthy in a wealthy family, the reality of that my children will face is extremely different than the reality someone who is below the poverty line will face. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find a rich person who thinks. That we should just, like, end food stamps, for example, right? Like, if you don't have enough money for food, you're shit out of luck, right? People have enough compassion that they would never vote for that. But that compassion is also selfish because they want to make themselves feel better. Well, I think think that's (laughs) a good— Now you're you're doing the whole, like, everything is a selfish act. (laughs) Well, I think that's an interesting example to bring up, right? Because in, like, under the OVNI paradigm, which is what I'm naming it now— It's called democracy. (laughs) 
Sure. <laughs> um, rich people would have every incentive to vote against food stamps, right? Yes. Like, if, if they, like, did the math out and they find out that they would gain money from right. food stamps not existing, you're saying that they should vote against it, and then if more people vote against it than vote for it, they win. But yeah. I'm saying that rich people have an obligation morally to, and within the spirit of democracy, to vote for food stamps. I agree that that should be the case. I just don't think that it that it is, and that it's practical at I all. I think it absolutely is. I don't think we it's have good. Food stamps. Well, right? that, we tax no. rich people to the, pay yeah. for food stamps. The fact that we have a progressive tax in this country, I think, means that enough. No, but then people, people that people weigh the pros and cons. So let's say I'm a wealthy Democratic, wo- or like I'm a, I'm a wealthy woman, okay, and um, I'm in my mid twenties. I really think that I should have the right to an abortion. I really think that's important to me. Yeah. However, if in order to vote for that candidate, I also have to pay some money for food stamps. I'm like, okay. Not okay, really. here, here's what Do I would you understand? Say. I, I think like one of the other... compromise on the food stamps issue to get your, your pro-choice issue. No, because everybody has an issue that they care more about than other issues. Right. Right? Sure. So that, you know, like, not everyone's a single-issue well, voter. However, one issue matters. Several issues are more important to people than other issues. I highly doubt if you went to a wealthy person and you asked them what their most important political issue was, they would say food stamps. However, I would say that if you went to, a like, a lower-income community where people rely on food stamps, that would show up a lot more often. So what you will find is that whenever you ask the people in like wealthy neighborhoods what their most important issues are, they will vote in line with those. And if that happens at the expense of other things, so be it. Well, here's my here's I think the hottest take. The reason that you should vote, uh, I guess I'll call it like communal or like altruistic voting, right? The idea that you should vote for what is in like the best interest of most people in like right. a utilitarian way. I think the best argument for why you should do that is that there are a lot of people that are affected by policy that don't have a vote. So, for example, when we appropriate foreign aid budgets to give money to people in Mali or Ghana or other African countries, those people don't get a vote. When we decide, like, abortion policy, fetuses don't get a vote. Fetuses aren't people. Yeah, like, if you're on either side of the issue. But, like, if you're a conservative, then, like, fetuses don't get a vote. If you wanted to decide you know, like global warming policy or climate change policy, people that are going to be alive 60, 70 years from now that will be the most affected by climate change don't get a vote. So even if it's in my selfish interest because I'm going to die before the effects of climate change kick in, I should have an obligation to vote for policies that will benefit people that live, that aren't alive now. No, but I think that goes back to like, if you ask a wealthy community, they're going to think about their children. And if they're well-educated, they will be like, hmm, I don't want my children to die in a massive flood flood surge. <laughs> so then would, surge. would you be okay with a sterile couple voting for, like, against a carbon tax on the basis that none of their direct descendants will be affected by climate change, well, even though millions of other people will? I mean, if that's an, yes, yes. See, I think that's bad. I don't think they should, like, I, they should be allowed to do that, but I would, like, use the power of social norms and shaming to make them not do it. If we lived in Eden, if we lived in paradise, I would be incorrect. However, we don't. This is the real world. And people are selfish. People are going to vote for themselves. And that is why we see things happen that we that we see laws passed that clearly are not for the greater good. Yeah. I think so then, so then wouldn't you agree? So like, what about the current world would make it impossible for there to be like a systematic change in the way we vote the way people are people are selfish wait wait like, can you clarify are you saying democracy works best when everyone votes in the most selfish way 
or that a flaw of democracy is that people are too selfish? I think a flaw of democracy is that people are too selfish. I thought, oh, then I totally, I thought you were trying to say that like people should vote selfishly, kind of like the free market works best. No, I think that people are inherently own. selfish and the, like the model of like political engagement that is democracy yeah. encourages people to be selfish. But are you saying that's and, a good thing or a bad thing? I don't, like, I don't think it's a good thing, but oh. I think that it's. Like that's that's like that's how democracy works. Like that that is essentially what democracy is supposed to be. But the idea is that you're aggregating that selfishness, right? And yeah. so it's like exactly. when we're all selfish together. So in Brazil, when everyone is selfish together, they elected Bolsonaro because there were well, more. No, the, the rich people were selfish together, and the and poor people and were, were just and they have and there were more of them, right. so they elected Bolsonaro, which I think is a legitimate political framework if that's if they decided to go with democracy. But my argument is that that's probably one of like the biggest systemic flaws of democracy. Is that it only privileges those that yeah, like, like the have best, the capabilities. The best to form vote. of government is an altruistic monarchy. But those yes, are benevolent dictatorships. Benevolent benevolent mm. dictators are altruistic monarchy, but you know, those are hard to come by. Maybe we should just all move to Luxembourg. All right. Uh, now we've got a great interview for you with Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. Uh, Anna Eshoo is the congresswoman from California's eighteenth district, which is where Stanford University is located. Uh, in the House, she serves on the House Health Committee, um, as well as committees uh, that oversee different science and technology issues. She's been a congresswoman for many years, and we're really excited to have her on the pod. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Congresswoman Eshoo. Um, Avni has our first question. Thank you. Um, well, obviously, you've um, probably been asked about this many times, but um, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford lives in your district. How did it feel when she came to you about her accusations against Brett Kavanaugh? What was sort of your decision-making process in moving forward with the letter? Well, uh, Dr. Ford called. She's a constituent, uh, and uh, we set up a time for her to come in and meet with me, which she did. I met with her for an extended period of time, I think maybe close to two hours. Uh, I asked many questions during our conversation. I thought what was very important, <coughs> excuse me, for her to know uh, was number one, that um, uh, that privacy and anonymity uh, was essential and that, uh, that, that was, that's always honored in my office, number one. And number two, that I was not there uh, to tell her what she should do. Uh, it was really up to her, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to uh, decide whether she wanted me to do, you know, uh, something for her and that we would go from there. So uh, we had a long conversation, and uh, she did um, uh, say toward the end of the conversation that she did want me to um, uh, take her case down, uh, you know, a, a pathway. Um, and uh, so I, I called Senator Feinstein on the heels of that, and she asked the letter be written to her from Dr. Ford. We communicated that to her. It took her some time to put the letter together, and uh, uh, we made sure that uh, her letter was hand-delivered uh, to the appropriate person in uh, Senator Feinstein's office. So, uh, you know, I mean, the story continues from there. I, I don't know what, uh, what other questions you want to ask me about it. 
Yeah, so we'd like to switch gears a little bit to the midterms. Um, obviously, they're, they're coming up on Tuesday, uh, and everyone in the House, including you, is up for re-election. And, and this election especially, we're seeing a lot of local politics really becoming national. Um, and generally, how are you handling, uh, like, addressing local issues versus national politics and balancing those two things? Well, I, I, first of all, I never take uh, my constituents for granted. So I worked very hard uh, during a two-year period. Uh, that's the time that my constituents give me. Uh, and stay in very close touch with them through town hall meetings in person, telephone town hall meetings, uh, community meetings, and uh, a very heavy um, uh, uh, communications uh, program. Uh, anyone that writes to me, sends me an email, calls, uh, has uh, whatever their specific uh, question or comment is, they get a personal response from me. So I don't do any canned mail. Now, during um, election season, um, I add uh, a whole other layer to my work because uh, I have to continue the work uh, legislatively, uh, but, uh, but also campaign. So uh, it's a heavy schedule, but it's a joyful one because I'm with my constituents and uh, there's a reason why I have commuted across the country every single week uh, to be home with my constituents as soon as Congress adjourns uh, 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 either on a Thursday or a Friday and uh, whatever day of the week, Monday or Tuesday, that we return to Washington, D.C. Uh, the, uh, the issues, it's always a combination of uh, both national issues and local issues. Uh, and uh, that's always the way uh, it's been. And uh, so that's not a surprise to me. Uh, but um, uh, the last two years, with so many of the challenges that have presented themselves, uh, it has uh, it, it it's been a difficult road to hold. Let me just put it that way. Uh, many people dismayed, uh, worried, fearful, uh, upset about what's taking place uh, uh, in Washington D.C. And of course, you know I. I give it my best to both give them hope and to give them good information. And as large as the Democratic machine can seem sometimes, your district is somewhat different than the average, and especially different from some other districts in, say, West Virginia or North Dakota. So how do you feel that the campaign strategy you've adopted and the issues you've chosen to focus on have differed from the broader Democratic strategy? Well, uh, every congressional district differs from another. Uh, I can go through a comparison of my colleagues just in the Bay Area and the differences between uh, my congressional district and theirs. There are always similarities. Um, everyone, um, uh, I think, across the country uh, looks through the lens of their own economy. What's their family's economy? How are they doing economically? Uh, what are their challenges? And they vary, obviously, from region to region, congressional district to congressional district. Uh, I have the privilege, I think, of, of representing the most distinguished congressional district in the country because it's the, it's the home of, uh, of innovation for our nation. Uh, uh, there is so much that comes out of this congressional district. 
uh, that people across our country and people around the world actually benefit from, um, certainly from the biotechnology uh, to high technology uh, to an extraordinary uh, 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 home of, of knowledge, Stanford University. Uh, and so it's, um, it's a wonderful challenge. It's a delicious challenge. Uh, to represent this district because of uh, of the people, uh, uh, what they represent, what they do, uh, and what we do for the rest of the country. And, of course, we want to keep that going. And uh, I'm never satisfied unless in every category America is number one. I'm never satisfied with 17th or 3rd or 5th. I want uh, our country to be first in everything, and I think that my congressional district uh, produces um, uh, at that level. Yeah, as students at Stanford and after living here for a couple years, I definitely agree. Um, also, sort of transitioning to health care, um, mm -hmm. if the Democrats take back the House in the midterm, you're opposed to become the chairwoman of the House Health Committee. What direction do you see the health committee moving in the next two years? Um, more specifically, how do you see single-payer health care or Medicare for all playing into that vision? Well, health care, uh, speaking of um, all of the congressional districts in the country, uh, it's the number one issue in every congressional district. Imagine that, that there is that much commonality uh, around an issue that is certainly personal to every single person, to every family. Uh, and uh, I think that people are legitimately concerned because of what's taken place uh, during this Congress. Um, the Republicans um, uh, never were for uh, the Affordable Care Act. And so uh, with uh, uh, both uh, uh, the Senate and the House uh, being under Republican control and the White House as well, uh, they really uh, put the pedal to the metal uh, to repeal, totally get rid of uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, they held over 65 votes on the floor of the House. Uh, to repeal the Affordable Care Act since uh, since the law was passed in uh, 2010. Uh, and so it's not a surprise to me that in every congressional district across the country, people are very, very worried about health care. And uh, it's also an economic determinant uh, in the lives of people. There are more bankruptcies filed uh, in the United States of America over health care bills than, uh, than anything else, which takes one's breath away. So uh, uh, in looking forward, uh, if the Democrats uh, reclaim the majority in the House, uh, we will be doing uh, a lot relative to health care. Uh, uh, number one, uh, we want to um, uh, reform different parts of the Affordable Care Act. When a very large bill is passed, uh, it's always important to revisit it to see what's uh, working well, uh, what isn't working so well, and, uh, and address, uh, uh, you know, wherever the shortfalls might be. Um, number two, 
I think that drug pricing uh, is a uh, is a very large issue. It's a cost issue for uh, uh, for people across the country. That's something else that we need to address, and I think that's going to take uh, several hearings so that people understand exactly how drugs are priced, uh, because um, uh, it's not just what's on the surface. There's there's a lot. Uh, there are a lot of players underneath that, and uh, I think that you have to establish a uh, something that's foundational with members uh, to understand uh, the entire system. So uh, there is uh, there is work to be done uh, in the healthcare area. Uh, we certainly want to make um, the uh, uh, you know what the costs of uh, of a health insurance policy is. Uh, to have it be affordable, uh, and as I said, drug pricing is another area that we want to address, and uh, certainly not only to protect about the Affordable Care Act, uh, but to build on it, uh, because the Republicans have done uh, considerable damage to it. Now, despite that, uh, their attempts to totally repeal it uh, fell apart because there was uh, an outpouring uh, really, uh, of people, it's kind of a revolution on the ground across the country uh, when they uh, came up with their uh, their so-called uh, Replace Act uh, because it had such tremendous uh, holes in it, including um, a lack of guarantee uh, that uh, people with pre-existing conditions be covered. So... Uh, uh, so, as I said, there's uh, a great deal of work to be done on the issue of health care. And despite all of the assaults, despite all of the votes to repeal it, um, more people have been added uh, to, um, uh, to the roles of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I just noted this last week that there uh, is more than one Republican governor that has said uh, that they would... Um, allow for the Affordable Care Act to move forward in their state so that they can accept the federal funds that come with it, uh, which is good news for the people of their state uh, that would uh, um, be able to participate in it. So uh, honing in on drug pricing for a second, um, that seems to be like a rare place where President Trump and Democrats in Congress actually seem to agree. Um, so. Mm-hmm. What do you see, like going forward, as the federal government's role in regulating drug prices? Will we see more of like a uh, like Canadian-style system where the government is purchasing the drugs at a set rate for people, or like how do you see uh, like that playing out? Well, we uh, in the United States we already uh, do that uh, for the Veterans Administration, so there is um, already an example of where that is done. Uh, and how it benefits that population. So I think certainly uh, that area uh, will be uh, will be examined. I hope that we can uh, work with the administration because they say that they want to bring down uh, drug prices. Um, and uh, their proposal, uh, as I understand it, uh, and I did speak to, they reached out to me, the administration reached out to me, I spoke to... Uh, um, someone that uh, assists the uh, uh, secretary of HHS uh, recently uh, to better understand what their, uh, what their 
um, you know, what their proposal is. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, I mean, there there's ways to go. Uh, I've expressed support for HHS to negotiate directly uh, with manufacturers for Part D. Uh, now, that differs from the administration's uh, proposal. And um, so I, I think that their proposal is... Um, is a start, um, but I also think that there's, there's there's a lot more work to be done on it. So, you know, what the outcomes will be, I can't tell you now. Uh, it's going to take the, the, the Congress to come together uh, around, um, uh, around the issue, uh, but I do think that there are many different uh, approaches that, number one, should be examined, and then hopefully we can develop consensus and move forward because uh, there really is a need uh, to um, to address the pricing issue. There's no question about it. Uh, when I uh, uh, when it comes to drug pricing, there are three elements that uh, that I'm always uh, that that guide me. Uh, certainly, safety uh, number one, uh, affordability number two, and innovation. Uh, because uh, you have to have a constant uh, cycle of investment in uh, research and development in order to bring uh, either biologics or regular pharmaceutical products forward. So those are the three things, that the uh, three pillars that uh, um, that are um, what I would say, you know, the uh, the guidelines in uh, in terms of my approach. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. Um, unfortunately, this is about all the time we have. So our, our last question will be very quick. But uh, what is your favorite place to get coffee in your district so that we can go and study there? <laughs> My favorite uh, 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 coffee is uh, Starbucks. I love um, uh, lattes, and I like uh, some non-fat milk and... Um, non-fat um, vanilla syrup in it. So I like my skinny vanilla latte. I really enjoy that. But just one tall cup is enough for me for the day. Amazing. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on our show. It, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, and have well, a great a rest of your day. To to you and thank you for having the interest to, to reach out to me and to be with you. Absolutely. Take care, Congresswoman. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.